Friends, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. We'll actually read 1 through 12 to pick up the context. We're working our way through this book. Tonight we return to, uh, for now the third time, Paul's theme, how should Christians relate to other Christians in the body of Christ, in the church? It's the theme, actually, of chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. We've already seen in the first two verses that the church is a community. It's a community of intimacy where we know one another enough to stumble over each other, offend one another, and have to bear with one another in love. It's a community of intimacy. We saw last week it's a community of unity. We are one people, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. It's now tonight in, chapter, in verses 7 through 12. It's a community of diversity. And next week it's a community moving towards maturity in verses 13 through 16. Tonight we're looking then at diversity in the church. What's Paul talking about when he speaks of the church? Well, there's a guy named John Reed Miller. He was pastor at First Presbyterian Church in Jackson beginning in 1952. He's there a couple of decades. He told the story of a pastor of a small church who came up to him and said he'd always regretted not being able to preach in a big church. Dr. Miller said, what do you mean a big church? Well, the guy said, I've always pastored small churches, done missions conferences at small churches, Spoken in small churches. And Dr. Miller looked at him with tears streaming down his face. What do you mean a small church? There's no small church. There's no big church. There is only Christ's church. I didn't die for this church. I didn't save this church. I didn't call anybody to this church. It's Christ's church. There's only one church. And it's Christ's. You've got to understand that as you walk into any church, it's his. He alone creates it. He alone gives it life. He creates the unity we spoke of last week. And he creates the diversity we'll see tonight. I want you to consider that diversity and where we fit in his body. From Ephesians 4, verses 7 through 12. Pay attention now to God's word. Back at verse 1 for context. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying, he ascended. What does it mean but that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who ascended 
is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Amen. This is God's word. The grass withers, the flowers fade, because the breath of the Lord blows on them. The grass withers and the flowers fade. The word of God stands forever. Let's ask him to bless us. Father, this is your word. And we ask that you would be our teacher tonight. You would give us understanding. Help us to know you. Help us to believe what you believe. Help us to then walk in its way. Change us by it. Show us Jesus. For we ask in his name. Amen. So Paul wants to speak to us again about our relationships with one another in the church. And after proclaiming in chapters 1, 2, and 3 the uns- what he calls the unsearchable riches of Christ. All the great and wonderful things God has given to us freely in Jesus. He turns to, in 4, 5, and 6, how the good news shapes us. How it changes us. And the first thing he talks about is the church. The fundamental truth about all of us in creation is that we were made for relationships. We were made for one another. And it is dehumanizing to be alone and isolated. That's why you're doing something important. When you visit your grandmother in a nursing home and you sit with her, even if she doesn't know who you are, you're doing something important because you're connecting her to her humanity. We're not made to be alone. And for the Christian, the church, rather than the family, is our first priority in terms of human relationships. Your family is important. We're not downplaying that at all. Far more important than most of us believe. And we'll ordinarily spend most of our time with our family. But the church is the foundational community. Think of it this way if you don't follow me on that. You can be in this world and have lost your parents, be single, have no children, have no known relative anywhere in this world. But if you are a Christian, you belong to other Christians. You belong to the body of Christ. That is fundamental. Jesus has placed you here, and we all need one another in this body. There's a wonderful words from C.S. Lewis, the, the writer. He had a famous circle of friends, you know, J.R.R. Tolkien, who gave us the Lord of the Rings. Lewis called him Ronald. And Charles Williams, who was another author. They were in this little circle called the Inklings. And Charles Williams... Uh, Charles Williams died unexpectedly after World War II, and Lewis wrote an essay entitled Friendship, and he was reflecting on this. He said this, really insightful, In each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Charles joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. 
We possess each friend, not less but more, as the number of those with whom we share him increases. Do you catch that? Lewis is saying it takes a community to pull out of people what they really are like. Our individual distinctives come out when we're around one another. What makes me, me, and you, you is sort of unveiled and put on display in our interactions. You'll never be able to do that by yourself in isolation. You'll never know who you are. You've got to be deeply involved in the church, in the life of the Christian community. Don't misunderstand, the church doesn't need you because you are great. But it does need you because a great God lives in you by the Holy Spirit. And so he speaks then about our relationships in the church. And and he's talking in this passage specifically about our diversity. And I want to highlight four things he says about our diversity. In verse 7, he speaks of the gifts he gives. In verses 8 through 10, the cost of those gifts. Uh, In verse 11, the uniqueness that brings, and in verse 12, the purpose of those gifts. And these gifts make us diverse. Look look then at the the gifts themselves in verse 7. Christ gave gifts to each of us. This is what he's saying in verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now what is he speaking of here when he speaks of grace? Not saving grace, but serving grace. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 is all about saving grace. You know, we don't begin to live for God until we get life from God and we get that life as a gift. And then it begins to express itself in the life that we live. That's saving grace. But there is such a thing as serving grace. We, we, don't, uh, we aren't saved uh, there. We don't serve in order to be saved, but we are saved in order to serve. And saving grace is given to all. And serving grace is given to all, to each. But in different degrees, according to the measure of Christ's gift, is the language here. This picks up Paul's different uses of the word grace. We're all saved by grace, he says in chapter 2. And this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. But in chapter 3, he'll talk about This grace was given me to preach the gospel. Okay, The the grace of serving in this capacity. This is the kind of grace he's speaking of here. This grace is given to each of us in accordance with the measure of Christ's gift. And so he's then going to be talking about our differences, what makes us distinctive in the body of Christ. Whereas he'd been speaking of our unity, now he says... Within our unity, there's diversity. And that diversity actually serves our unity. Like you can hear somebody saying, if they've tracked it with Paul's argument, about unity in verses 3, 4, 5, and 6. You can hear somebody almost responding to Paul when he goes on and on about, well, there's one body, one faith, one Lord, one hope, one baptism, one big happy group, you might think. You can almost hear somebody saying to him, but, but Paul will then... If I'm supposed to aim at that unity, does that mean I need to shrivel? Do I need to shrink? Do I really need to become a nobody in the body of Christ and never express my individuality? Because then I would demonstrate I'm different than somebody else. So do I need to hide my personality? Do I need to hide my gifts? 
No, Paul says. No, our diversity is a gift of God to serve one another. We're not, to borrow a Star Trek metaphor, next generation, which is the all-time best Captain Jean-Luc Picard, best captain ever been, we, we are not assimilated into the Borg. If you're not a Star Trek fan, you have no idea what I'm talking about. We don't lose our individuality and become just a number, you know, hooked up into a machine. We're lifeless and we're colorless, but we're all one. We're all identical. There's nothing appealing about that, I realize. My freshman year college roommate and I were going in two different directions in uh, August of 1988. I had just become a Christian. I was all zeal and very little knowledge. I brought my Bible to college and I put it on my desk. Not to show off because I read it. I was so hungry and I was learning and it was exciting. I'd get up and go to church, which I'd never done before on my own in my life. But I was a new Christian. It was all very, it was, it was thrilling. He had grown up, however, unlike me, he'd grown up in a Christian home. In a Bible teaching church, in a gospel teaching church. He knew, or at least he thought he did, He certainly knew far more than me. He knew everything, but he could care less. He was going in the exact opposite direction. He was reading Anton LaVey's Satanic Bible while I was reading the Christian Bible. And you know what question troubled him most? This is what he says. There were actually a whole lot of moral issues going on that troubled him more. But but he did have a bug about this issue. He said, you know, they say that, that, that we all become more and more like Christ if we become Christians. And that when we get to heaven, we're going to be perfect like Jesus. And and then doesn't that mean, he said, we lose our individuality. We stop being us. We become a robotic-like clone of Jesus. And who wants that? I'm not me anymore. Now, you totally misunderstood what the Bible promises you. You will be holy like Jesus. You'll love what is good. But you remain you. In fact, you'll be more you than you have ever been in the way that you were designed to be. You'll remain unique and different, and it'll be a gloriously diverse body of creativity and energy and skills and functions in the body of Christ, like it is now, although it's sometimes hard to see. I won't be less human in heaven. I'll be human as humans are designed to be, fully healed, fully Functioning, that's what he's made us to be. And so he's given us a diversity of gifts in accordance with the measure of his grace to be expressed in the body for the sake of one another. These gifts are for service. If you were to look in the New Testament, there are at least five lists of gifts that he's given. In Romans 12, verses 6, well, 4 through 8, and 1 Corinthians 12. On both halves of that chapter, two different lists. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, 11. Ephesians 4 here, verse 11. He mentions apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. There's all these lists. It might be helpful just to notice a couple of them. If you were to turn to Romans 12 for a moment. Romans 12 and go back to verse 4. Paul says this. For as in one body we have many members... And the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. 
having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. You see what he's saying? We're, we're all different by design, by the gift of Jesus. It's a glorious thing. Peter will say in 1 Peter 4, uh, he'll put it this way at verses 10 and 11, as each has received a gift, just listen to this, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength God supplies. He, he categorizes gifts into two categories, speaking gifts and serving gifts, though, of course, he means for both speaking and serving gifts to be in service of God and others. But he divides them that way. Speaking gifts gather a lot more attention. They just tend to be public. Serving gifts are no less important in the body of Christ. We need one another. Larry Crabb, the famous author, uh, was speaking at a conference. And the guy said to him, we need to go. He said, what do we need? We need to go. He said, well, your son just got kicked out of a Christian college. We need to go. And Larry Crabb, reflecting on that, says, you know, I had done it right. I hadn't been perfect. Nobody's perfect. I taught my kids the Bible. I loved them. And it had been a complete failure, he thought. Trying to think of the magic words to say to his son, words that would hit his child. His son will say, now I get it. At the dorm room of his door, I, I couldn't help, I couldn't think of anything. So I, so I just walked in, I sat down, I looked at him and I said, how can I help? And he began listening to his son. And his son later said this, that began the most important conversation I ever had. With my dad, when my dad didn't say anything at all. Larry Crabb actually left that experience and told everybody to throw away everything he'd ever written and begin to write differently. He said his new advice in counseling was this we need to rethink everything. You may just as easily serve someone by listening to them as. By teaching them. And he's not undermining the importance of teaching. But sometimes our, our very quiet serving gifts. Even serving another by just opening your ear. Can be extremely helpful to people. We need people in the body of Christ who will just listen to us. There's a place for everyone in other words. Everyone has their place in the body. There's Gladys Allward, a missionary to China last century, she tells the story when she was a teenager. She always lamented how short she was. She was under five feet. She just longed to be six inches taller. And she also lamented her dark black hair. She considered those her two, her two faults. Uh, and then when she got off the boat to China, she found that she was the same height as the women there. And she had the same color hair that they all had. And she realized the Lord had prepared her from her mother's womb to identify with the people in China. 
to be able to come alongside them and minister to them, along with giving her, of course, other things along the way, like a spirit of compassion and a desire to, to learn a foreign language and go to a foreign place and to pray for people and other gifts as well. But the Lord prepares his people and has been since you were conceived for your place in the body, even for this very season of your life and all your life. There, there are no useless Christians, friends. But there are Christians who choose to be unproductive. Somebody once likened the church to a jigsaw puzzle, you know. Two pieces are never the same in that puzzle. They're all a little bit different. They have sections that stick out and others that jut in and we all fit together. If you want to drive somebody nuts, of course, what you do is if they're a jigsaw puzzle lover, you you give them a big jigsaw puzzle with a couple of pieces missing. It'll drive them crazy, Right? Well, that's what the church is like. We're like a jigsaw puzzle where every piece has a place. And if one piece is missing, the picture is incomplete. It's not what it should be. In the church, diversity isn't destructive of unity. But what is destructive of unity? How about this? Envy and pride. Pride in our own, envy of others, position in the body, and gift mix. And I think actually here you have a helpful undermining of that pride when he reminds you, friends, how did you get your gift? You have it by the grace, the unmerited favor of Christ. He gave some to be apostles and prophets, he'll say at verse 11. He didn't give that to any one of us. His kingdom isn't a pure democracy. In it, you can't grow to be anything you want to be. Now, listen, we're all equal before him in the grace of salvation, but we are unequal before him in, in areas of responsibility in this life. Not all people get to be apostles. There were 12 plus Paul and an extra or two, you know? I mean, not everybody got to be a New Testament prophet. The apostles and prophets have their names written on the walls of heaven. You can't grow up to be anything you want in the kingdom of God. There are a lot of things in Christianity you won't get to be this side of heaven. But every Christian can say, whatever I am, I am by the grace of God. Whatever gift I have, I have by the grace of God. That undermines pride, and it ought to undermine our envy. When we see others serving well, we ought to say, Jesus gave them that. Jesus called them to that. Praise Jesus. And thank you for serving. So he speaks of the gifts, and then he speaks here of the cost, the cost of us receiving those gifts. Notice in verses 8 through 10, Christ gave these gifts at great cost. To himself. Verses 8 to 10 almost seem like an aside. First, he takes you back to the Old Testament to prove, okay, where in Psalm 60 it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. To show you this is an Old Testament idea. And then he goes off about how, well, you know, he ascended, then therefore he also descended, but then the one who descended also ascended. What's he talking about? Why does he go into that? I think it's actually very helpful. In Psalm 68, this is, a, this is an Old Testament psalm about the triumphant king, God, going up to the city 
with the spoils of war in a train behind him. He's been victorious and he's brought all the spoils of war and he begins to dispense good gifts to his people out of his great victory. And so it is with the Lord Jesus, Paul says. He assaulted the kingdom of darkness and he rose victorious. He ascended into heaven and like a general victorious in battle, arriving home with a train full of captives in his wake and giving out to his people the spoils, the booty of war and distributing the gifts widely so everybody shares in the benefits of the victory. So Christ has battled the forces of sin and death and hell and Satan, defeated them, risen from the dead, ascended into heaven, having plundered the kingdom of darkness. And what did he plunder that kingdom of? You. He, he rescued you. And he brought you with him, ascended into heaven, and he distributed you to all the other assembled people. This is what he did. He shares us with one another as trophies of his grace. I think this is the idea. But listen, this is helpful to recognize. Paul goes on to say, not, I think, not in an accidental way to say, well, you know, the one who ascended also descended, but actually in a way that will help you use your gift. He, he reminds you that the one who ascended to glory also descended, he says, to the, to the earth or to the lower parts, the earth. He, he may mean just simply the earth. He may, in fact, have in mind the humiliation of Christ in going to the worst place on earth, the cross itself, where he became obedient even to the point of death and suffered in our place to win our freedom. And he may be saying this, you remember that whatever gift you have received, it came at great cost to Jesus. So however you're called to serve, it's going to be to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. And who knows what deaths to self you will need to die before there is fruit born for the benefit of others. You know, when you're serving you don't feel like people are serving you. I think Paul is saying, you remember Jesus. He came not to be served, but to serve. If your gift is hospitality, say, and you're rebuffed, you remember that he descended into a world that didn't welcome him, and yet he opened wide his arms. If your gift is leadership and people turn away, you remember he descended into a world that wouldn't listen to him or follow him. If your gift is serving you, and, and you do it without the appreciation of others, you remember that Jesus descended and that he wrapped himself in his own cloth and he knelt at the dirty feet of his own disciples and he wiped them clean and the disciples used those feet to walk away from him in the hour of his greatest need. You remember he descended from on high to the lowest place to serve us for our good and when you are called upon to use your gift with very little appreciation, you remember you're being called to walk in the path of your Savior. And you go back to Christ and you remember he descended farther than you have ever been called to descend. And so he tells you a little bit about the cost of your gifts. He tells you about the uniqueness of them here. Christ gave, he says, verse 11, well, verse 7, he gave to each. And at verse 11, he says, and to some he gave, or he gave some. He actually doesn't speak of giving the gift of teaching, but giving teachers to the church. 
he gave some to be apostles. You think of Peter, James, John, the twelve. No longer with us, he gave prophets. Again, in the earliest days of Christianity, before the Bible was written, there were New Testament prophets who spoke faithfully the word of God in the absence of any book. He gave evangelists. Actually, the New Testament only recognizes one by name, Philip. Though we know that Timothy was called to do the work of an evangelist, they seemed to be assistants to the apostles and prophets. They preached the good news. And he gave, he says, pastors and teachers who shepherd us, Instruct us and feed us on the milk and meat of God's word. And he continues to give pastors and teachers to help his church. Why highlight these? Why does he highlight these unique particular gifts? I think two reasons. One is very obvious from the text. He's, they're all speaking gifts. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. They, they in some way propagate the good news. Right? They're speaking gifts. And, and he's going to go on to say those speaking gifts are to help people to edify, build them up, teach them the truth as we go on all the way through verse 16 so that you can go from immaturity to maturity. We need somebody to tell us what the Bible says. But I think there's another reason. I think he's reminding you we all don't have every gift. Some gifts none of us have or ever will have. There's always somebody, therefore, in the body of Christ with a gift more vital to the body than yours. Let me preach that to myself for a second. There's always somebody in the body of Christ with a, with a gift more vital than mine. The apostles who laid the foundation of the church in an unrepeatable way. Praise the Lord, we have what they wrote. We have the apostolic but, but I think there's, a, there's help there, friends. It's, it's humbling in a good way to recognize that. I think it's helpful in a variety of ways. Uh, think, think on the one hand of how wrongheaded it is when Christian ministries, as they will do from time to time, tell people that they ought to assume they're supposed to go to a foreign mission field unless they know for sure God has called them to stay. I heard that in college and I've heard it since. I don't know if you ever encountered that. The assumption being that everyone is commanded to go to a foreign place, learn a foreign language, foreign culture, drop your job, drop your calling, go to the mission field unless you know for sure you're called to stay. Now, I suppose that's a great recruiting tool. Some people will respond to the sense of guilt about staying. But think how disastrous that is. Well, on the one hand, if everybody left, there'd be nobody to send them, support them, pray for them, fund them, right? But think how disastrous it is for the mission field when somebody who isn't called, who doesn't have the gifts, goes. Not everybody's gifted to do that work. Now, maybe some of you even in this room are. Maybe you need to be trained for that work. Maybe you need to be willing to go in that direction. But you can be just as much a plumber to the glory of God and an educator to the glory of God and a housewife to the glory of God, and a mom of infants to the glory of God, as any missionary on the foreign mission field can be to the glory of God. We need to cultivate a mindset, friends, that says, Lord, help me to understand my gifts, what they are, and help me to put them to use for the benefit of the body. And we might also say this, we need to cultivate a mindset that looks around and says, you know, brother, I saw how you're using your gift and I appreciate it. It's helped me tremendously in this way to see you do that work. 
It's such an encouragement to me, or it's an encouragement to my children. We know that the body needs you here. Thank you for ministering to us with the gifts that God has given to you. We need to cultivate that, friends. And finally, he tells you the purpose of your gifts. We all have unique gifts. The purpose of gifts, he says, are what? Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. The apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers are given to equip the saints so that all these saints, with whatever gifts they have, can do the work of ministry. And how are they equipped? Let's close with this idea. How are we equipped? What does it mean to be equipped? The word equip is a word, it's a medical term used for mending a broken bone. It's also a word used in the New Testament for fishermen uh, taking last night's nets, cleaning them and repairing all the broken parts of the nets so that they'll be useful the next night. It's, it's a word for, in other words, repair, health, wholeness, the, the clean, uh, the, to clean the filthy, to repair the torn, to mend the broken, which is a reminder to you that in this community, as diverse as we are, it is but a hospital for broken people. And you will be much happier in this church if you recognize the material being used to build this church. Understanding the material will dictate, in fact, how happy you are in the church. What God is doing in the church is building a sculpture, an image of his own son, not from marble. If you think God is, you know, Michelangelo taking a chunk of marble and chipping away the parts that don't belong to uncover the beauty within, you will always be mad at the church. That's not what God is doing. He's taking broken things and placing them into his sculpture to make something beautiful. You've got to understand that. God isn't starting with something beautiful and chipping it away to make it more beautiful. He's starting with something disfigured and reshaping it and putting it together. If you don't understand that, you will walk into any ministry and wonder, why is nobody around here paying attention to me? Why, was, why is no one meeting my needs? Why is this place so broken? If we were a perfect piece of marble, you'd have a valid point. But this in any other ministry isn't. Everybody here wonders at times, why is no one talking to me? Everybody here wonders, why is nobody asking me how I am? Everybody here is afraid that if you really knew the real me, you wouldn't want me here. Everybody's broken. And God isn't breaking something beautiful. He's making something beautiful out of something broken. And the ministry of a pastor and teacher is to help you see Christ, lean on Christ, find the grace of Christ to heal your heart, to mend your broken bones, and to restore you to wholeness for service. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray you would root it in our hearts and it would bear much fruit. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.